This is the show. Oh. Hola. Here we go. Nice. <laughs> and we're going. I like uh, soft rollouts. Yeah. Hard rollouts are everybody just stops and you go, oh, now it's awkward. Um, this is, I was about to call it the Dissect Podcast. <laughs> hey. Ew. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's our podcast. <laughs> I know. Um, welcome to the nonprofit podcast, potentially. If, um, uh, so, Boston and Grayson. Yep. You guys are brothers, and uh, you own Honeybeard mm-hmm. Protein Company. Uh, you just for a little backstory. Why don't you tell us how you got involved and how you heard about this stuff and how we kind of came in contact? Yeah. So <laughs> I started working for this company called Honeybeard, a veteran-owned protein supplement company, about two years ago. Um, the founder is a guy named Brian Shotwell, uh, who's done an awesome job getting that going and uh brian got connected with you aaron at some point maybe a year ago or so um yeah yeah. maybe a little bit more than a year ago yeah and then we came out for a symposium uh that was in july and yeah shot a couple cool videos of george uh, and keegan Mm. and so that was kind of my introduction uh to y'all physically at least i'd been following for maybe a few months before that um and yeah, since then just have stayed in touch and, and now Brian has kind of moved on to some other projects and I've kind of got Honeybeard's helm nice. um, as we kind of figure out what it is and what it's going to be. So Yeehaw. Exactly. Yep. And then <laughs> nice. Grayson can introduce himself, but he's my little brother. Yeah. There. Yeah. And I, and I had followed Mark a little bit from climbing, just oh, growing okay. up climbing. And then it was Boston was telling me, I mean, when y'all went to the symposium, mm-hmm. I think that's when I was introduced to nonprofit and, and what y'all do in the podcast and stuff. Yeah. Um, and then just, yeah, from there and, and kind of some interesting connections with like me and Grayson lost our dad and Oh six and Baghdad. And like, yeah, there's some interesting connections with Mark and we yeah. actually have a, a couple fellow gold star family, uh, kids who uh, some of their okay. dads, Mark has actually trained before. So gotcha. there's just, there's some, yeah. there's kind of a web a little bit. What was the date? It was November 27th, oh, okay. 06. Yeah, you yeah. mentioned something upstairs, and mm-hmm. it wasn't going to save it for this. Yeah. yeah. Um, it, what uh, branch? He was Air Force. Air Force, okay. Mm-hmm. And it was at a rescue, or are you even able to? He, uh, you know, yeah, he flew F-16s. So, oh, yeah, he oh, flew shit. fighters, um, and he was deployed. So he deployed in September of 06, and then okay. November, um, it was just a routine kind of surveillance flyover. So essentially just flying over and responding as needed or Mm -hmm. as they, you know, found bad guys. Um, and then he got a radio call. There's a downed helicopter of 22 Delta guys, Mm. um, that were in need of help. And there was some, uh, I don't know how many, hundred to 150 insurgents were were closing on their position. So our dad was the only one in the air at that point. So he responded. Yeah. Um, yeah. How does that response work with an F-16? It's like obviously air support, but mm-hmm. is it, you know, machine gun, laying machine gun fire or is it? Well, it's, I mean, 
Yeah, it depends on the situation. So in this situation, um, the trucks were within a mile of the down helicopter. So yeah. the response with bombs would, would, would be more ideal. Two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but with that, and I think there was also civilians nearby. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's kind of, you know, it depends on the situation. And, and he responded um, with machine gun. Okay. So, yeah. so low altitude pass. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I have to slow down quite a bit, right? Yes. Yeah, uh, yeah. yeah that is. And, and so he got, I mean, like RPG, what, what, what made his plane go down? Yeah, so it, kind of an interesting story, and it's wild. Now it's been how many years? <laughs> Fifteen. Yeah. Oh wow. And we've Grace and I and our family have kind of continued to actually learn more mm-hmm. as the years have gone by. But kind of what happened was, um, yeah, there was this canyon. So it was in Taji, Iraq, mm-hmm. so a few miles outside of Baghdad, and there was this canyon of miners, so insurgents, but mm-hmm. they're have a day job as well <laughs> so <What>? part-time <laughs> you know Dude, part-time taliban exactly, night exactly. literally Fuck. <laughs> there's like a t-shirt there for sure it, somewhere surely you could come up with it I would, Jesus <laughs> just piss off everybody yeah <laughs> um so they're working you know and and these delta guys that grayson hinted at yeah i think 22 of them were in two little birds and so they're flying kind of near this canyon and one of the insurgents picks up an RPG and hits yeah. one of the little birds. So that tails. And then the second one tracked that one. So they both land and essentially they're just sitting ducks. Gotcha. In the okay. desert. It yeah. was the situation before our dad. Um, or that's what he's up. coming into. Okay. Right. Yes. Yeah, yeah. You're basically trying to at least stop like an infiltration from the actual site until like evac can get out. Right. Yep. That's probably the strategy. Not that I know, but mm-hmm. that's what I imagine. Yeah, they so essentially, obviously, with the insurgents, they having trucks, you know, mounted trucks. So their capabilities are just far exceed. You know, for the Delta guys, it was whatever they had on their person, as yeah. well as maybe whatever light weaponry was on the little birds. Um, and so at that point, like Grayson said, these you know insurgents coming within a few miles, these guys were essentially just gearing up for a long fight which it ended up being a few hour firefight and with the f-16 so f-15 you have a co-pilot f-16 you have a wingman because it's a a single man cockpit right so my dad's wingman was was actually near whenever these guys uh, were downed but and with kind of the f-16 you trade off fueling so my dad was getting gas on the tanker in the air and he's hearing you know the delta guys kind of screaming over the over the radio yeah and essentially kind of to our knowledge my dad's wingman just didn't quite um (laughs) just didn't quite maybe neutralize the situation um as quick as the delta guys didn't do the job yeah didn't do Uh, the job that necessarily needed to be done sure so this was prolonged was one of the issues was in the insurgents were just getting kind of closer and closer to the to the yeah. Delta guys and more in their multiplying forces because yeah. it's like, Oh, you know, as, as one truck, two truck, and then they're calling over the radio to their buddies. And then there's the firefights lasting long enough that, you know, guys are coming from other areas. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, yeah. 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 That's kind of what they worry about in most situations. Right. Like, right. That's, um, uh, Derek was talking about that. Like you kind of prepare for the worst, but imagine it's like almost like a signal flare when something goes down or there's a big explosion. It's kind of like, you know, blood in the water. You're like, Oh, they're probably, you know, in a bad spot. Very much so. 
Okay. And with their mounted guns, you know, they can start engaging so much sooner than the Delta guys with, with their, you know, whatever automatic weapons they have, you know, I mean, from miles away, they're being shot at essentially and can't do anything. Yeah. I mean, what's the caliber on a truck matter up to 50 or something? Yeah. 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 Uh, So this is, this is what I was looking at this week. Mm -hmm. I accidentally hit a play button. I was, um, cause I, the first, uh, truck mounted gun was, um, a Russian revolutionary fighter, Nestor Mokdo. And he was, so he's just like crazy character. Um, he like comes from, you know, servitude. So back um, before the Russian revolution, before the white party and all the Bolshevik thing happened with all the SARS they they're basically sold off how I understand it. Parts of Kazakhstan or not Kazakhstan. Um, no, I can't think of it. Uh, Kiev, whatever, uh, that country, <laughs> Kiev. Mm-hmm. Um, they they sold off parts of it, and it was it was sold as serfdom. And so he was like born into serfdom until he understood his history as a Cossack. And once he learned, like you know, he he illegally learned how to read and started like joining this book club. And eventually, this book club turned into like a militia. And it's like, oh, it's weird how that works. Education comes with like. Uh, empowerment you're like mm. you you like people think guns are the dangerous thing and I was like but empowering somebody with their history and knowledge of ability is probably the most dangerous thing so they basically this one 17 year old slave boy and we're talking like real serfdom not like not like oh I'm a squire but like I belong to the land and you know these rich aristocrats are abusing their powers all over this place and he basically learned to it came to power. He assassinated a bunch of military figures as a young, like murdering aristocrats as like a way, a show of force as a revolutionary force. Uh, like all technically positive, like mm-hmm. maybe unless you're, you know, Russian aristocrat in which he's a terrorist. And this is kind of the funny balance between like uh, freedom fighting and terrorism. But anyway, like long story short, he kind of like came to power and they were running from the white army I think at the time when the Bolsheviks, the White Army, the Russians were mm-hmm. all fighting, he was part of the revolutionary force. He did not believe in in the Bolsheviks' cause. He wouldn't support it. He didn't believe in entitlement to other people's property, which is a really interesting thing. He wanted freedom and he wanted fairness, but he did not want to uh, take somebody else's things. So they had this rule that when they, why he was so popular is he would go into a district and they would go to the aristocrats' houses and they would give them an option. You take what you can carry, you distribute everything else to the serfdom equally, and we'll let you live. If you don't, we'll just kill you and take everything. And so he made an option to like, hey, we're going to reset the balance here. There's no such thing as serfdom anymore. And it was kind of like this, you know, I see it from a, a point of like aspiration, like somebody that came from nothing to understand their car. If you know anything about the Cossacks, those guys were as hard as they come. Mm. Like even in pretty modern Russian times, the Russian parliament or the Russian czars would use the Cossacks as enforcers, like go in, hey, these guys pissed us off, go murder everybody. And they would just come in as barbarians and just wreck towns. Um, so once he understood that history, understand his capability, and then uh, they're running from the white army and the, you know they're not doing too well. And he's looking at a horse carriage and he's like, can we mount a gun on that? And they're like, uh, I think it'll work. And so they plan a retreat, 
like they plan to retreat. They hold their ground. And when the white army starts to chase them because they think they're winning, the horse carts are going backwards and they just start firing while in retreat and they annihilate 90% of their military. Yeah. Like through a, that, so if people don't understand that, that took a small army and it wiped out mm. a massive regime just in like one conflict because they, they, I think they kind of, put the lore out there right mm -hmm. like oh you're winning and they dangle it out there and that so I, I think when you say truck mounted you know gun I, people really don't understand how powerful yeah. of a military item that was you're like and you know it's probably why you see them littered all over Africa mm -hmm. from like you know ISIS and all these different things anyways it's fucking weird rabbit hole yeah, but that's interesting it made me think of it because that, that story <laughs> came up and you said truck mounted and uh -huh. I'm like oh this is such a dumb fact that's good <laughs> Anyway, go ahead with stars. I didn't mean to no, segue it out. Yeah. Well, multiple of those. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah that's okay. what was going on. Yeah. Um, yeah. So essentially, you know, it's, it's just, it's hot. Um, yeah. And I think it lasted for a few hours. It's also kind of a funny thing. I mean, obviously, I haven't been in war, but mm -hmm. from what I hear, you know, you think obviously from movies as well that this is like a five minute. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. No. Yeah. I mean, these are long, a lot of times yeah. ordeals. Um, and so essentially it's just getting worse and worse with my dad's wingman, you know, not really making as much of a difference mm -hmm. as I know the Delta guys from what we've heard. I think we're expressing some explicit language, mm -hmm. uh, toward him to be able to try to <laughs> sure. help. Um, and so this was kind of at the point whenever, and we've, Grayson and I have been able to meet a few of these Delta guys and, mm -hmm. and talk with them, which has been pretty powerful experiences and okay. one of them he's got a huge scar on his leg broke his femur during that firefight Whoa. from getting shot yeah so so no one ended up dying but it was close mm -hmm. um and so dad's wingman goes to fuel and at this point really at the our dad came off the tanker with like not much time right. he was kind of left with the most dire you know uh closing sort of to the firefight mm. uh, portion of it and and yeah, I can let Grayson kind of go from there, but yeah. So then he came off the tanker. They switched positions with his, you know, his wingman started mm -hmm. to refuel. Um, and then that's when he essentially, you know, came over, assessed the situation, realized that bombs were not an option mm -hmm. at this point in time. So came on a, on a low altitude pass with a 20 millimeter and he took out, um, one of the trucks that was approaching. Um, and, and it was pretty mm -hmm. close. I think that that was the a truck that was within a mile or so or even closer and, and also the nature of the shot and and boston brought this up we're a lot of these things we've learned recent it's yeah. like this is like mm. an evolving like it happened 15 years ago yeah, yeah. but i mean i was six years old and, <sighs> and even as facts have kind of come to light or, or at least come to our knowledge it's like this is still like it's almost still evolving which is which is a really interesting you know a lot of the, like learning things so many years after like literally a i think a couple weeks ago we yeah, got we'll connected with, oh, no kidding. Yeah. with like another facet of the story that's right. like oh you know mm -hmm. um yeah so and w w with this we learned also after the truck um in a fighter when you, when you're wanting to shoot a moving target with a machine gun mm -hmm. um you obviously you want to get line the target moving towards you or moving away from you mm -hmm. um if you're flying in the plane um, and he didn't have time to essentially set that up as well as the trucks were, were close enough to, uh, the helicopter that he risked overshooting 
the and truck hit. and hitting. Yeah, gotcha. So okay. essentially, he had to come at it from a perpendicular angle mm-hmm. and lead the target in a moving F-16 <laughs> at like 200 feet yeah. above the ground. So yeah. rather than just going behind and just shooting in a line, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're, yeah it's this yeah. trying to... <laughs> yeah, so he hit it, which was... Uh, Against all odds. <laughs> yeah. Pretty fucking insane shot mm-hmm. from what we've yeah. heard from pilots, um, which, which, was, which is cool. And then came out of that pass... And also, you know, another thing to think about, he, he knew there were still trucks approaching, mm. so he had to take a second pass. But the amount of, you know, you have to gain enough elevation, yeah. you have to take the to time turn, to yeah. turn to, to be able to essentially look after yourself. Right. And yeah, so like, then there's another decision point, you know, a split second decision has to be made of like, okay, how am I gonna approach the second pass mm-hmm. that needs mm-hmm. to be done? Yeah, I imagine, uh, we watched this in Death Valley when we went out there for um they were doing those fly routes up at eureka dunes and they're like 100 to 150 feet off the ground and they do these flyover passes and just to see the arc even slow they're not like Mm -hmm. they're not you know pedal to the metal kind of thing that it feels like they're at a very low potential of their flight speed i can't i wouldn't be able to estimate it because i'm not good at it but to watch the arc at what it takes to turn around and the height that they need to get you're like uh, that's a complexity that you just it's really hard to fathom yeah and then it's like pulling like you know how many g's yeah oh yeah you know yeah i mean most people would vomit in their helmet most people would pass out yeah 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 Yeah. and it was tighter than he than he would have ever Mm. pulled it right and also with some of the roe stuff you're trying to he's probably looking over his shoulder trying to track to make sure that he's still Uh, eligible almost to maintain this assault and come back on a line exactly Uh, yeah pretty complex situation and then also within the cockpit he's at such a low altitude that every single signal is going off um and and probably talk about there's a essentially a voice that literally it tells you pull up pull up (laughs) too low so he has all this stimulus going on that has to just be blocked out right especially and and flying by sight he's flying by sight as well he has to keep (sighs) eyes on the target and keep eyes on the helicopter while he's maneuvering this plane. Mm-hmm. Oy. Yeah. Oy. So then the second pass, um, which from what we've heard takes out the remainder of the enemy or at least Another, enough to it, where yeah. they either, you know, partially killed, partially leave, <laughs> you know. So the, the firefight was closed at that point and on his second pass coming up after engaging essentially just makes impact with the ground he was like you said michael he was about 200 feet above the ground so you've felt that you know and and was in the act of trying to pull up and so to from what we know wasn't shot down i'm sure was shot at at that point um but literally made impact no Uh, kidding yeah. yeah essentially knew that the high possibility that he wasn't going to be able to recover from the second pass, mm-hmm. but knowing that there was still the threat approaching mm-hmm. that the second pass was their best bet on the ground. Those guys. Wow. Yeah. And I mean, we've also, you know, we've talked to, um, we have some, some friends and, uh, what's was Rangers. Anyways. Mm-hmm. Um, they talk about just being on the ground, approaching enemy knowing that maybe you know that that pre-firefight mm-hmm. and then all this you know talking to air con, you know air power over the radio mm-hmm. and 
those guys have described that oftentimes just a jet flying over low altitude Mm -hmm. guys turn is enough bad guys turn around yeah because they dude if you've ever felt under an it's um i wouldn't I'd be like, hey, I'm out. Yeah. Peace. <laughs> yeah. Just the sound, like the the boom of it's that engine over. Yeah. yeah, it's just like it's, it almost blows your eardrums out. Yeah. So in addition to the you know the actual machine gun fire mm-hmm. that he laid down on the ground, it was the presence there. It was yep. a presence of like kind of a show of power. Yeah. Yeah, it's a posturing that mm-hmm. you're like, I've got this. You know, I thought it was a big gun on the back of a truck, but that guy showed up with a bigger gun. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes. Right. Yeah. Oh man, that yeah. is crazy. Well, it, how? I mean, in all of this stuff, this experience. Obviously, you were very young when this. How, how were old were you? I was nine. Time? You're nine. Okay. Mm-hmm. How? I mean, it's obviously formative. Um, mm-hmm. Do you have like clear memories of your dad, and how did this experience like shape that and shape who you are today? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I'm going to answer that, Michael. The crazy thing is really this is just kind of where the story starts yeah oh no kidding as well um which we which we can get to but uh i do have some clear memories i'd say i have you know i mean nine probably have 10 to 12 visceral memories Mm -hmm. i'd say and then the rest you know stories and you see pictures and you think that that maybe is a memory but it all gets kind of jumbled um but i do yeah i i do remember them i mean we're the you know top two of five kids Um, And so it was, you know, nine, six, three, and then the bottom two are twins and they were nine months. Oh, wow. Um, So Grayson with a few memories and me with the most, obviously, but it's still pretty sparse. I think between the five of us, you know, obviously the younger girls were pretty young. Um, But yeah, you know, I, I, he loved what he did. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm, I'm confident that what kind of manifested in that moment obviously I don't know what was going on in his mind I don't know what kinds of conversations quick conversations probably he was maybe having with himself but you know I think I'd like to think that a lot of that was pretty conscious mm-hmm. from him um, knowing who he was knowing what I remember what I remember of him and what I hear about him you know it, it, that feels that moment feels pretty consistent with the kind of with the kind of guy that he was um, yeah well, I want you to finish the story. I, didn't, I thought mm. it was, I, I was know. trying to be <laughs> yeah. delicate and end it, but I appreciate yeah, it. Yeah. Go ahead. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. So back to, so his plane crashes, whatever insurgents that were approaching the Delta guys automatically turn to the crash. Yeah. So anything, if you know about Al Qaeda at the time or the Taliban, yeah. they love anything that that they can take that's yeah. american yeah, you yeah. know to kind of show yeah. we so brought this down exactly yeah. yes so they go directly to the crash site and also this is a uh one of the hottest areas in iraq up to the war at this point in time that area was like there's a lot of 15 degrees yeah oh that yeah both <laughs> um so american forces couldn't get into the crash site for for a little while and so they turned tail, went straight to the crash site. Um, they filmed some propaganda with oh, the really? plane with our dad. Um, and he's alive at this point? No, no so oh. he's killed upon impact. Okay. Um, and there's a drone that's watching this. So, yeah. so um, literally Americans 
back at a base are watching Everything this happen mm-hmm. at the crash site, oh. unable <sighs> to get into the crash site yet. Yeah. So they, yeah, take this video, um, which they posted about a year later on Al Jazeera. Okay. Um, and it, yeah, it was essentially a video of the flaming plane. They were standing on the American flag on the wing. Mm. They had showed part of our dad as well. Um, oh, really? They yeah. showed his, his military ID, which was on him. Yeah. Um, in the in the commercial that they y- made. Yeah, yeah, in the commercial. But actually, made. in the video, it, there was all. It was also. You know, it was everything. What the fuck are they advertising? Like, well, so it was it was like an anti-Bush administration oh, right, kind yeah. of thing. Like they're saying, like you know, or you know, they're calling our military baby killers, and um, essentially, that's you know, that was the message. Yeah, yeah, fuck. Yeah, so they yeah they show his ID card on the on the commercial, um, and then you know had kind of a dude in a uh, full black you know, headdress sure. and all yeah, that, yeah. you know, talking about the anti-Bush thing and, and calling our dad a baby killer and, you know, that kind of that style. Um, and so me and Grayson, we actually, we didn't find out till years later. We, we had watched it. I remember just, I remember I was probably 10 at that time, just searching stuff, you know, yeah, my yeah, dad, yeah. right. Yeah. And it pops up and about a, f- maybe a few months after that, our mom had it, had it taken off, had spoken with whoever she knew with the air force and yeah. so that we wouldn't watch it. And then this was probably, we were in high school. It came up in conversation one time and it was like, Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah I, I, I was, watched it. I was, I was, I was <laughs> eight, curious on YouTube. Do, yeah. do you think that made it harder or easier? Yeah. I don't, you know, so I was six and it's, yeah. I think in the years after, you know, I, Boston described also it's like okay what is a memory of mine what's a picture Mm -hmm. that I you know I thought it was a memory and then I'm scrolling you know I'm looking through a photo album and it's like oh for some reason my memory looks exactly exactly like that photo and I realized that that was I just have seen that photo and you associate so yeah yeah okay but as you know growing up I'm you're I want to I'm trying to latch on to any thing that was him or his so um, cause you, you know, it, I'm just, you're just trying to connect as a, as a kid growing up impressionable. I'm trying to learn, you know, and that's what that curiosity brought me to. Yeah. There's, um, there's something I, I asked because there's like, um, in my head from like trying to understand people's experiences with like losing a parent and loss. And we'll, we'll talk about mm-hmm. the thing we kind of talked about, uh, upstairs a little bit later on. There's this, um, natural thing that children do to um, kind of resolve loss. And if you let children do it uh, at a young age, they'll, they'll come to it naturally. And it seems like it's a, it's a cycle, uh, like maybe a genetic predisposition to dealing with trauma or loss, but children will usually um, put their loved ones to sleep. Like they get tucked in. Like it's this really weird occurrence. There's a there's a really good poem and story that goes uh, with this in um, this collection, um, uh, of, like short stories where they kind of talk about how how often this happens when they let children around dead bodies that they know they really like are comfortable and they're very like astute at understanding that this is something different and this is like this is a, a sacred thing and they are, are very they're more appropriate than human like adults mm. uh, which is a very interesting thing like kids being connected to this and I think there's probably some harm in adults thinking that they're protecting them from some kind of 
uh, emotional harm, but in in all honesty, they're probably making the emotional harm happen as opposed to like letting uh, resolve come from it. That's kind of why I asked the question is like, parents think that they're doing, oh, I don't want them to see that or that's traumatic or actually the trauma is in not resolving the story mm-hmm. that it's time to go in for like the long sleep. And they can make ideas about death later, but they can understand that, um, you know, the loved one is not with them anymore and that they're going away. So it's, hmm. I don't know. I think that's different than seeing a video of on YouTube of, sure. you know, mm-hmm. someone yeah. mocking the situation, but I think there's a lot of merit to, to both of what y'all just yeah. said. Yeah. Oh, that's really, it's, it's hard to hear. Yeah. Yeah. So his, so his body was taken by those insurgents, um, rolled up in a carpet, driven away before Americans could get to the crash site. So in that initial, there's that mad dash of, okay, can we, can we follow mm-hmm. them? Can we yeah. track them? You know, trying to essentially like, how are we going to, it's kind of like that first 48, yeah. you know, and yeah. in a crime, cause it's like, how, mm-hmm. how quickly can things disappear in the desert? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. Even with drones and whatever. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And so they essentially lose him. Um, and at that point, you know, we got the word that, you know, dad, dad's plane went down. Um, and initially it was actually kind of that weird KIA POW mix mm. because it was like, Am I, uh, yeah, the communication around that was, was complicated, you know? Mm. Um, cause no one I think was completely sure what was kind of going on. And so within those first 24 hours for us, we were in Phoenix, Arizona at the Mm. time, you know, it was just kind of like dad's dead, but it's, it's weird. Officially, you know, duty status, whereabouts unknown. Yeah. Oh, right. Yeah. Wow. But we go ahead and and plan a a first um, funeral at Arlington in DC. So that December we had that service. Um, And at that point, you know, and, and, none of us knew that he was taken as well. So we oh. didn't know that it was essentially an empty casket. There enough DNA to confirm that it was. Our mom did. Kids. Right, absolutely. Yeah, we yeah. didn't. Yeah, she had, I, I, for what we just talked about, had, yeah. was protecting, Interesting. you know. Okay. Um, yeah. Yeah, and so that kind of launched into, I guess, volume two. <laughs> story. I had no idea that this, like, was, like, this is it's it's awesome that you guys are able to share this. So I'm like mm-hmm. I'm like completely compelled by mm-hmm. this, but I did not expect the story to be that that harrowing. Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Yeah. It, it's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's been wild. <laughs> and ever and evolving still. Yeah. But yeah. uh yeah, so that launched into that initial I guess now years after of okay, there there is, you know, guys that are overseas, you know, there's a list of hey, these guys bodies are still in Iraq or, or mm-hmm. in Afghanistan or whatever. Um, so our dad's on that list essentially oh. of, you know, searching, still searching for, because um, as, as a country we value bringing yeah. and remains. bringing remains home. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to the Taliban, they were essentially passing what we learned was passing our dad's body around. It, it's kind of serves as a war trophy in a mm-hmm. sense um, from village to village, from tribe to tribe. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's yeah. a trophy for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh. Yeah. So, uh, add seven years 
uh, I'm a sophomore in high school <laughs> and I get a call. I'm going to a soccer tournament game in the weekend. My mom calls and she's like, Hey, they found part of him. Uh, and it's like, okay. <laughs> and you, Grayson, you were there. If I remember right with mom. Or, yeah. 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 I was with, and, and she got a call and essentially it is that, well, they had found, so, so a tribal leader had come to the base, a base in Iraq and was essentially like, I have some remains of a fighter pilot asking for, you know, Hey, yeah, I, I need cash or mm-hmm. something. Exactly. Yeah. Um, and that started this, you know, I don't know how long, maybe days or weeks of, yeah. okay, like, how are we going to deal with this sensitive situation of like talking to negotiating or not losing because he could again this guy the sheik mm-hmm. could walk off the base mm-hmm. and we never hear from him again yeah it's a tr- it's like a it's a shady trust situation yes exactly so that was kind of this you know seven years later it's like almost all you know a little forgotten and around that time we're also as a country pulling forces out of iraq mm-hmm. so this it's is a bit a of a last yeah. ditch uh-huh. like yeah this has landed on our plates like how can we you know take advantage of this opportunity <sighs> and it ends up leading um ends up not leading anywhere except mm. for the remains that he did bring to essentially prove which was um part of uh his our dad's toe bones so at the crash site there was some skull fragments mm-hmm. um, and some dna there that they could confirm that he was killed upon impact mm-hmm. with um, and then seven years later from the Sheik, we get some of his toe bones. Um, and so we didn't learn about that. Um, like my mom didn't learn about that until after they had essentially given up that it, it ended up leading nowhere. Cause they didn't want to tell my mom these details while the story was evolving, while they were trying to, to still see if track. they could get them all yeah. Right, yeah, yeah. to see if they could get them all. And then they don't have to explain the whole right. story. They could just say that, yeah, you know, got hey, remakes, we got yeah. him. Um, and just to just to butt in and share, like, okay, this the story Grayson just shared. That was most of what we knew at the time. But I'm speaking at an event. It was for a uh, it's a foundation that um, pays for like extracurricular activities for Gold Star kids. Yeah, it's like a thousand a year or whatever. So they pay they've paid for Grayson's archery stuff over the years and oh, hunting stuff okay. and yeah. And so I was speaking for them last year. I, I get up, speak, it's in Colorado Springs, I sit down, and then I just feel this like bear claw on my shoulder. I turn around, it's it's this it looks like an operator. OAF <laughs> <laughs> dude. Exactly. And he sits down, he pulls the chair, you know, where he, he turns it like he's sitting, you know, <laughs> like a cool way. like a cool teacher from a nineties movie. Exactly. exactly. Nice. Yep. Um and he's like, Hey, I looked for your dad. You classic intro right and i'm like (laughs) all right cool (laughs) he's at the event yeah and he just launches into this story about how he was a part of i I can't remember which branch he was but um some sf guy and he was uh but part of this team that found some of the that dna and this was was this 2013 2013. so he's hearing me talk he's just attending this gala Mm -hmm. some connection has no idea hears me talk about a little bit about the story and Mm -hmm. he's like Oh shit. That's yeah. That's the guy that I like Whoa. his dad is who I found. So he launches into this story and tells me 15 minutes worth of story that we had no idea about. And he essentially just started to share about he was on it was like a 3-4 month mission where he was tasked with just finding our dad. It, like Grayson said, we're pulling out. He's 
at, and I think that our dad was the only uh, Viper guy killed in combat. I think there were about four or five F-16 pilots who died in that era, but most of it was training. To my knowledge, I think he might have been the only one actually in a in combat, combat situation. Yeah, that was. So it is this kind of publicized. I'm not familiar with the term, the Viper. Oh, F-16 is called a Viper. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, uh-huh. okay. nickname for the jet. Yeah, and so. Um, this this operator you know is sharing how he was on this on this pretty hot mission and he said it was one of the more difficult um journeys that he had in his time you know and he launches into this this story about how essentially there was this tribal leader who had came to the base that he was at i can't remember exact all this happened around baghdad so it was somewhere near there but Mm -hmm. this uh yeah this sheet comes and essentially communicates that he has some major Gilbert. Oh, know. so this is the guy on the ground that was experienced at the toe bone. So this this was one of those guys. Oh, okay. So this okay. was a team that, that yeah, that okay. this leader came to provided the DNA. And so this is one of the operators on the other end receiving mm-hmm. it and then and was put on this essentially investigative mission to try and, you know, and he tells me about how that tribal leader who came with the toe bones, he had like this blood feud with his brother. And he was like trying to use, like he was trying to barter our dad for the operators to go kill his brother. Oh my God. It was like this crazy story that like, I mean, we had no idea that was even, it was just so deep. On one end, you're like, all right, this seems cheap. (laughs) 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 Right. I'm just sitting there like, man, you know, thank you for sharing. Yes. just crazy so that's how a lot of the stuff we found out have been just that's kind of an example little tidbits that's happened. that pop yeah, up here and there it's just wild you know it kind of reminds me of, um did you ever uh, the blood road um from rebecca rush did you ever watch that documentary i don't think so that's when she was in Vietnam. Yeah, her dad, yeah. a fighter yes. pilot in Vietnam, went down, never recovered anything, uh. nothing. And so she does this like insane mountain bike journey to try to find, and they're recording the whole thing. And then they end up like finding a lot of it. So she finds the person who kept her dad's remains. Oh it's an insane story, but it's like, it's very similar. Yeah. It's and it like was a, his son. It was the son. So, oh yeah, yeah, the uh, son this, of the person. Who, yeah, yeah. Th- there was a farmer that found her dad's plane that mm-hmm. went down and pulled his body out. I, I, I yeah. think that's how I remember it. Yeah, I have to watch it. And then wow. his, his dad told his son the story, and finally the son got a hold of Rebecca. Yeah, they yeah. linked up somehow, and she got some of her dad's it's remains. Like, oh how gosh. many years later? Like thirty-five. I can't remember. Yeah, yeah that is insane. Vietnam. Yeah, 50, there's still so 50, many yeah. that are yeah. still there, <laughs> which is. Jeez. It's so tough. That is, and so this is like the last like detail to come out. Th- this was, yeah, this was there's more. Well, oh, <laughs> well, yeah. Oh no, there's more to the there's, story. There's always more for this 2013 escapade. This was oh, this one of the tw- more detailed stories I heard okay. surrounding that with this this operator who was sharing this. Oh, with so you me, got but. somebody on the ground who like has details mm-hmm. that you can't that that's not covered by like some report exactly. that's going through an administration or something exactly yep not a message from the government or from an institution yeah that is oh, so at that wow. point we in 2013 we had a second funeral so after you know they they hey you know hey we have these toe bones it's not all of them and at that point they'd committed to still searching you know kind of the mm-hmm. no man left behind thing so they assured us that they would continue the search um and so we had a second funeral. I mean, I, yeah, I was a sophomore. Grayson, you were in middle school. Oh, yeah, and thinking that that's oh, kind yeah. of the end of this journey, that, okay, you know, 
there was this second chance and we recovered some of him mm-hmm. and you know there's even some interesting symbolism with you know we had skull and toes so it's it's head to foot and yeah oh, you know, that my mom felt a lot of kind of almost peace, closure. peace and closure sure. to the journey yeah. but still hoping obviously you know yeah that slim for, chance for more that all of them maybe but it's like okay you know rarely do you get a second chance after especially after seven years mm-hmm. and then it ends up leading to nothing it's like what are the odds that you're going to get a third breakthrough after yeah. seven years yeah right yeah 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 but so then fast forward three years <laughs> so, so 2016 <laughs> so exactly. 2016 okay uh-huh. i was in high school <laughs> you're in college uh-huh um i had just come home i was playing high school football at the time and i just come home from practice and my mom greets me at the door and all all it is is they found him they found him whoa so it's like oh okay yeah like typical tuesday and and my mom (laughs) yeah and my so my mom essentially got a call um from it was my dad's commander in iraq and and he was still in the air force he's a four-star at the time um really close family friend of ours and it was essentially that you know she got a call that was hey uh, you need to fly to Delaware tomorrow. Um, yeah, I can't say this officially, but they mm. found him. And that's what my mom got. So it was um, Dover, Delaware is where they, they in process all the, uh, or I think, yeah, everyone who is killed overseas uh-huh. kind of comes in through Dover. That's uh, okay. first U.S. soil, yeah, yeah. generally. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so um, they were awaiting, I guess, DNA confirmation, but it was like, can't tell anyone where you're going you just need to fly to delaware you know um mm-hmm. but obviously so yeah they recovered him 10 years later which is a whole nother yeah um, story if you want to launch into yeah so at that point you know we get the call to go to delaware they found him you know but we didn't know any details past that and so we all meet up you know like i was in college so i fly on my own to meet with mm-hmm. the family in, in delaware and then they kind of start explaining some things to us that similar situation, another tribal leader came <laughs> to this base in Baghdad. Really? This was how 12 years or this how many years later? 10 years, 10 later, years after. Sorry. The yeah. Crash, yeah. 10 years later, still kind of the same area. So it's again, of course could never I think, know. I think they said that it had his body had traveled about a hundred miles. Yeah. Around. And then oh, cause it's kinda, going through all the villages. To right. This. And an interesting thing, too, just to back up a little bit. So after they had found... This might have been bookmarking that 2013 find, Mm -hmm. but there were tons of different teams, primarily of operators, a mixture of SEALs, um, really tons of different uh, branches who were tasked with some of these teams to try to find them. We were told that 100 Olympic-sized swimming pools uh, was dug looking for our dad during those years. Guys like um, Josh Bridges... Yeah. famous crossfit athlete was yeah. i've seen a video of him with a sledgehammer looking for my dad oh no um, kidding eli crane bottle breacher former seal guy you know i mean Crazy. a lot of a lot of dudes were on that you know some of those missions just to look for our dad um and, and even you know again talking about all these facts being revealed years later you mm-hmm. know sometime yeah. sometime last year my mom gets a call from a wife of um a young army guy that was killed on a mission looking for our dad. So that's a whole nother yeah. interesting thing. And yeah, th- it was really, it was a really cool, it ended up being a really cool story. You know, this wife 
talked to my mom, it was essentially like my husband believed 100% in what he was doing. And I have no, I hold nothing against you um, or your husband or anything. He's the only one we know about who I think was. Yeah. I think he's the only one. He had a one year old. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, it really does show the like, sorry, the, like the trickle um, of, of actual collateral damage. Yes. Right. You're like, uh, it's just like, well, it's, it's easy to understand why it's unending. Uh, yeah that's yeah. what i got out of that as well like how how does it ever end if like now you guys are like that was my dad and they're over there like fuck these guys mm-hmm. like how, yeah. where is the end point oh hmm. i mean uh, but the, it's never been any different i don't think like you're describing human history and that, right. that's why like people are fed up with, we just know more about it. Like we have more stories, more accurate stories, more media that goes behind it. So people are more informed about essentially human nature, which is, you know, I'd hate to say it like tit for tat. Mm. A lot of the times, um, that's, that's, I mean, it's an insane story. Uh, It reminds me a lot of, um, it's, you're still going, huh? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Say whatever you want to say, Michael. <laughs> we could keep going. It reminds me of the Wormwood story um, where, you know, the the dad is a CIA guy that gets tested with, like, LSD and all sorts of stuff, and they essentially think that he was pushed out the window by the CIA mm-hmm. in order to, like, as one of these experiments or whatever to try to get somebody to whatever. Um, and the, his child basically... To fast forward the entire, he's captivated by this story because he doesn't know any of it. And like you, he was a teenager when the first information and just captures his attention. And then he starts digging and pulling one thread after the other and finding out, oh, wait, this was not an accident. And then like, you know, is really responsible for digging up a lot of the information that came out about all these projects that the CIA was involved in and um, surveillance things, the Project Midnight Climax, like all of these things. And um, fast forward, he's like 50 and he's like, I've, he hasn't done it. He's been attached to this story. It's been his life. He can't get away from it. And it, the, the stories like the, I think the, uh, Netflix series called Wormwood. Mm-hmm. There's a really great line, uh, in it. And he's like, yeah, there's no other choice. I have to follow it. Like you can't not do it. There's something mm-hmm. about your connection mm-hmm. to the people and the, the storing is, the story is so compelling because you feel compelled you feel obligated Mm -hmm. to warn and share and also live it, um, that it's wormwood. It's all bitter. Everything about it is terrible, Mm. right? It's like, it just all hurts the senses. That's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Continuing to live it. I think you bring up an interesting point, Michael, is I think, trauma like it's one thing for it to happen once and how mm-hmm. cataclysmic that can be obviously for anyone with any kind of trauma and it's this interesting <laughs> yeah. thing when you add a chronic a, a frequency to, to it. it right yeah I, have you guys uh not to interrupt but yeah, have, totally. you, have you guys done um any like therapeutic um services in order to deal this with like what is the the option i mean there's obviously a lot of investment 
that goes into retrieving remains and making sure that this is like, I, I can understand that like it feels we 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 solved this problem mm -hmm. or we at least we have there's finality in the remains and the burial and like putting a you know closing the book kind of deal. Yeah. Uh, how much? You know, they obviously there's programs for you to do bow hunting and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It sounds like there's mm -hmm. a, a, at least a good program uh, involved. What what else was offered as part of this? Um, I know personally, I think we have both been um, super impacted. There's a camp called Knights of Heroes, mm -hmm. um, and it's just essentially an outdoor adventure camp in Colorado. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of foundations, there's a lot of organizations mm -hmm. that have helped us or, or come. A, beside us but i think what's what's an interesting thing is a lot of them it's give 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 yeah. and you see this in a lot of military nonprofits. it's okay mm -hmm. what can we give what can we um you know with the gold star family or with the wounded guy it's mm -hmm. you know and yeah. and ultimately a lot of that just ends up hurting yeah. them in the long run how um, so i mean i'm with you it's, i'm trying yeah it. no mm -hmm. it's it's building a sense of entitlement uh, i don't know yeah. it's an interesting um I think you're a hundred percent right. Yeah. Actually, and, and you know, obviously, we know we've met a lot of other Gold Star kids, and it is like, uh, it's it's such a weird thing because it's like, yes, it, you've been through this trauma and it sucks, um, but at the same time, in the years after, okay, so so you lose your father figure, mm -hmm. um, so you automatically kind of lose a lot of the, the maybe influence that's going to teach you valuable things yeah. in life skills and then on yeah. on top of losing you know this positive influence of a father figure you're being given what people think is going to help you and kind of fill that void mm -hmm. but in a sense it's actually it's not teaching you anything yeah. it's just pacifying um Ugh. and there are few organizations that actually seek to help in a way that actually helps yeah um so this you know i think i think one that stands out to me is this camp knights of heroes which mm. which i've actually um i mean we both have volunteered for but it's for gold star kids and they go up into the mountains for a week and it's hard yeah um and i remember so our dad's one of our dad's good friends who is also an f-16 fighter pilot um his name was steve harold and he at our dad's first memorial service in 06. Um, he has two sons that are our age that we're really close with and essentially saw me in Boston and was like, you know, who's going to teach them how, you know, who's going to take them camping? Who's going to teach them how to shoot a gun? Yeah. Who's going to teach them how to build a fire? And, you know, just these things that I, you know, if, if we talk about young man and, and growing and, and kind of having some sort of initiation and into, li into life yeah. um, and learning a lot of these valuable lessons or skills or whatever. Um, they're earned. Yes. Mm -hmm. They're not given. Exactly. They're earned. Yeah. So, but, but who's going to guide right. these young men on the earning process in a way? Um, so he started this camp and essentially, so the first year was 2007. So I was seven, you were, I guess, nine mm -hmm. or 10. Mm -hmm. And um, it continued every summer and, grew and, and now you know it challenges gold star kids so you we don't you don't walk away from the camp with anything you get the you get to keep the t-shirt so it's like that's one aspect <laughs> and it asks a lot of of you like yeah. so it was i mean 
some of the classic activities is fun. You go whitewater rafting, you know, stuff in Colorado. But as well, it's like as an eight-year-old, we have to go out and build our own shelter and we're given nothing but a thing of rope and we have to spend the night by ourselves and nice. confronting, you know, spending a night in the mountains of Colorado as a, as a young kid, having just built a shelter. It's like this, it's kind of, it, it, it can be terrifying for a kid, especially a kid who I think there's some common threads with gold star kids. Like, um, two things is, is issues with trust and issues, um, with feelings of abandonment sure. and it's like truly feeling alone in that sense. So many organizations, so many people don't want you to feel alone because you've lost someone. And it, it's kind of like, that's kind of a natural tendency to mm -hmm. feel like, Oh, I've Pacified. been left. Mm -hmm. But in reality, you know, like we talk about with some of this therapy, it's you're not given the opportunity to actually face that. And in a situation like that, where I'm sleeping alone in a shelter I just built, I'm faced, I'm, I feel alone, but I'm, I'm facing that, you know, as opposed to being pacified. Yeah. Well, I think like, I'm trying to think of a non, to try to make, um, uh, an analogy to this. It's like when there's something wrong in a system, that's a complex system. Like, like, uh, the only thing I can think of is like an aquarium. Right. And one of the things is broken and you just keep changing the water because the water is poisoned. Like you just have to keep mm. that, that cycle is not sustainable. And so instead it would be smart to like, you know, fix the part, uh, you know, that is causing all the symptoms of this thing. And I think uh, we, we don't do a good job about attending to the system. We just look at like the pieces and go like, oh, the water's bad, so change the water out. But then it gets bad again, and you're like, you never go down the line. And I think that a lot of, uh, it's hard to, you know, I don't, I'm not like educated enough to know what that would be in a human being, but it seems like we have the technology to understand. Mm. Like, hey, here's, uh, you know, five kids that lost a father figure. You know, you don't just keep, you know, changing the water by experiences, you set them up you know, so that they can fix themselves. Mm. Uh, I don't know the answer to that, but uh, I, I see where you're going with like, it seems like your heart felt in your uh, appreciation of what was given, but also understand that it was like a mask, yeah. right? Like it, it's like, and it's really hard because you don't want to sound undeserving or like yeah. unappreciative. Ungrateful. Yeah, because it's obviously all these experiences are, cool that yeah. they're trying like there's no no one's saying that these are like you know uh, malicious intent or even like no no and they're good things yeah. but if you're if you're you know you can be given the tool but if you're not taught how mm -hmm. to use that appropriately then it's not gonna last it's not gonna be good yeah. you know um so in a way it's like it's best when like yeah we've been you know helped along by a lot of these you know, these, what I'm referring to is like giving us, mm -hmm. but as well, you have to teach how mm -hmm. to utilize that. So it's like, these aren't inherently bad things. And like, like you said, the, the intent isn't malicious, mm -hmm. but if you're not taught, you know, the lessons of how to make the most of what you're given, yeah. I think that's the, that's a valuable piece. I mean, there's some like Eastern philosophy in here that like it, you might not see it necessarily, but there's this uh, concept um, when, when you take on, um, a student, 
um, it's like knowledge is earned and the only way to earn it is kind of like burning the hand and through hard work. Mm -hmm. And so there's like this uh, service is what you would go into in order to learn something. So a mentor takes you on and the first thing you just learn how to do is work really hard. And that's what enables you to start learning correctly because in order to do this service, like it just comes with all the inherent qualities that are, you know, in, in Eastern philosophy that are inherent to a path of enlightenment or whatever you want to talk about. Um, but in this case, uh, probably the hard work and earning, um, earning the ability to like take care of yourself, yeah. you know, it's something that I, I think is, um, uh, resembles having a father figure is like there, I, I think culturally the norm is a father supposed to show you how to take care of yourself, yeah. how to become a man, how to like mm -hmm. become a good person, um, to have a work ethic, all of these things. So they're trying to instill that in you. And a lot of the time they're skipping, um, the work portion and giving the reward, expecting that yeah. you can mm -hmm. just jump to the part. And like most things, this is, this is a lesson that keeps coming up. Uh, for myself, which is like, um, if I want to fix something about myself, and recently I've really like, ha I've really worked on trying to listen better because I'm a bad listener, and it's been like a real intent where I like, okay, st like people are talking, and my brain is going to try to keep up, and try, and then I'm missing things because I'm involved in my own thought process, mm -hmm. and it's it's relevant only because. Um, I know the answer is listening. I've already I've already said what the, the problem is. I have to go through show my work. I have to go through in detail. No, no, how do I actually listen? I hang on every word. I spend more energy on it because I don't, you know, that that's the, the work. Um, the problem, the answer, the solution is known and the question is known and everything in between is what allows the answer to be valuable, I think, if that makes sense. Maybe I'm a little bit too abstract, but. Yep. No, yeah. No, I think it does. And I think that it's to start with your question as well, Michael, of have we undergone any kind of like mm -hmm. therapy processes or, and I, I think that I kind of view it on like a couple tiers. You have the, say these organizations and foundations mm -hmm. and conglomerates who try to, who try to give or try to support or help. Um, and if they're doing it right, I'd say like a Knights model, it's to facilitate so you get to go in right. sort of the arena and participate like like you're not ever kind of like what you're saying i think michael is it's a everything's a process anything i think of value is a process mm -hmm. right and it's yeah. going to require cost because the cost is going to equivalent like the the degree of the cost is generally going to equivalent the degree of the reward or the gain obviously that you're going to get from that particular experience and i think that's been the case with us and our healing mm. as well it's almost like sounds rudimentary but it's like how much you put in is how much you get out and i think uh, yeah. that that's been so clear to me and it, it's not to like like toot our horn or anything mm -hmm. like there's obviously those those lulls and those mm -hmm. dips and you have but i think that generally speaking that shaped a lot of our trajectory as we've kind of grown and developed and and wrestled with this thing which is that that gap that hole in our in our life um and it's like there's a lot of things you can fill it with and so where do you turn what do you do mm -hmm. and i think that just that act of committing to some kind of process some kind of buy-in has been the most centrally the most 
healthy thing for me. It doesn't matter what direction you go, right? You just need to start walking. Exactly. Right. Because if you just stay in in a place waiting for uh, like waiting for some kind of epiphany, mm-hmm. uh, like the answer to I need to get somewhere. I don't know where I want to go, so I'm just going to wait for the destination to arrive and the directions to land in my map uh, or in my lap. That. <laughs> you'll wait forever they'll never come but exactly. you start walking and you start seeing the terrain in a, in a therapeutical standpoint analogy and you start going oh that's what that looks like i went the wrong way and then you can turn around and maybe you pass your, the place that you would have been mm-hmm. but eventually you're going to start making a map yourself as opposed to waiting for something to come and i think this is a good a good place for anybody that can recognize that they everybody needs therapy to some point right therapy is not um it's not fixing weaknesses it's tuning it's not a it's not a broken thing you're dialing up or down your emotional and psychological state so that you can work better or you can be more productive and i think that that context makes people understand it to the point of like um, hey, if your guitar is out of tune, do you just fucking smash it? Like, do you go into self-destructive <laughs> mm-hmm. pattern? Like, ACDC, fuck yeah, you do. Or do I just, like, take a minute and play? Like, maybe I don't have the tools that I need. I don't have a tuner. I don't have an ear for it. But if I just start going in a direction, I'm going to start hearing something and feeling something. Oh, there it is. Like, there's E. There, And then you start you know, mixing and matching. And eventually people come into your life and they're like, hey, if you put your finger on the fifth fret and you strike this chord and this chord, they'll match up, they'll resonate together. And that is how therapy feels to me. Where you're like, you know, talking to a therapist telling me about my, you know, Oedipus syndrome or whatever the fuck. Uh, they want like some Freudian thing or Carl Jung. All these archetypes are fine and they're, they're working in the right direction, but eventually something will resonate and you're like, oh, I'm on the right path. I'm tuned. Yep. That's therapy. So I, I think it's cool to see that although this is like such a traumatic and probably because it's a captivating mm-hmm. um, experience that you've gone through, it doesn't seem like you guys are trapped by it and this is a this is a hard thing with trauma or oppression or something that's happened to you is that um the oppressive effects of trauma are your focus and your gaze on the actual past yeah like that that keeps you oppressed by the trauma it keeps you under its control and it seems like you guys have like really like moved this thing and pay tribute to it at the same time. Because I think my response honestly probably wouldn't have been as genuine. Yeah. Uh, when you're describing the story, my internal mechanism is saying, get away from everything, burn it all down, like walk away and try to forget the story completely, yeah. which is mm-hmm. my survival technique. It's not a, the healthiest one, right? Sounds about right. <laughs> right, it's, not, it's like, I don't wanna hold resentment or anything, so I let I, mm. I tear everything down and let it go. but. I would miss I would miss the relationship and the love that you have for your father and that is an important thing like the your your gratitude for the amount of time that you did have and how you recognized it was like counting the years more than him because that's how much more appreciation you have for your experience and I think I, I it's like it's commendable I know I see immediately my gap and a problem hmm. that I probably need to tune if I want to, um, if I want to connect deeper relationships. 
right? I need to like make sure that I uh, I appreciate them more and that I respect them more. And that way, you know, if there's loss, um, I don't just turn away and burn it down because that causes a different issue. It's a disconnection, mm-hmm. a disassociation problem. So well, I appreciate you guys pointing that out. Yeah. It's something I didn't see until I really saw your guys's um, your path. It's really it's phenomenal. This must, um, especially for you, Boston, being the oldest, this must have brought you and your mom really close together too. Like you've probably had to really be there for her as well. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's funny. Um, I remember before our dad left, he told me you know you're the man of the house now i was nine and it's so (laughs) funny because everyone we meet that's like a like a thing that it's like a big no-no right like don't say that yeah but to the tune of what both of y'all are saying michael and aaron it's like what i heard from you michael was there's something that can seem negative or or Mm -hmm. too painful or too traumatic to engage totally Mm -hmm. but i think that that can be a facade. Like I think at our, and this isn't us all the time, but at our best, or I'll speak for myself as well, at my best, I can see that thing a little bit more object objectively for what it is, which it can be f- this fuel or this, it, it can actually be like managed maybe healthily and sustainably and courageously. I think that, uh, perceived weakness or pain can, I think be the very thing that could fuel you to, to actually surpass, I think your level or your potential before if I go burn mode, which sometimes yeah. there might be a time for that. Absolutely. I, yeah. Like, I think there's a time to scratch. There's a time sure. to reexamine like 1000%. And that's also highly personal. So that yeah. is going to look different, yeah. I think for each person, but just in my experience with something like going through something like this, I think at my best, it's when I can look at it just kind of look at just kind of almost like that you turn the diamond right and there's that little bit of a different angle every time you turn it and you start seeing it in different lights and you start seeing it for what it actually is or what it could be and at its best it's this positive fuel that can kind of ignite me to actually a much higher level higher platform higher capacity or whatever than i previously could have attained or accomplished if i would have rejected all of that um Sorry, I got off on what you asked, Aaron, but um, I think that this is an example of like even my dad communicating that, which he probably wasn't thinking maybe much of it at the time, but it's just funny that I've heard multiple times from relationships now that, oh, you should never, that's like one of those, like you should never tell a kid that, right? I, but for me, I'm like, yes. I, yeah, I was going to say, know, it sounds you know? like um, permission to take responsibility how have we become Mm -hmm. a culture well we have become a culture like you look around and you're like yeah we can see that there's a void of responsibility and accountability and a figure like a father coming in and saying hey you're responsible now it puts yeah there's a load there Mm -hmm. right there's like risk and there's like responsibility and accountability that lands on your plate and it becomes very heavy and some people with a burden suffocate but a lot of people respond to the heaviness by becoming stronger from it, right? They, they, how will you ever know um, whether you're able unless you, unless you really grasp something that you don't know if you can handle? Mm-hmm. I was like, I, I really, I mean, in a superficial way, I think 
Mark did that for me in my 20s. He gave me responsibility that I didn't deserve and that if I was going to come out the other side, I had to earn it. Right. So like it wasn't free. It was you're now in charge of this job and you have my name behind you. And if you fuck this up, it's you like you're the problem. And it's like I could have fucked it up. And I do you know what? If it was my own name, I probably wouldn't have cared because I hadn't earned a name yet. I hadn't earned the right to be proud of something. Um, and and man, I really wanted to touch on this subject because I is a kind of a segue into something we can for sure come back but this this idea um and i think it's everywhere and i don't want to pick on any one like subcategory but we're we're mentioning like our current culture we'll just call it western civilization because i think it's the world now it's like the fucking internet makes everything connected even though we have like these slight differences but there's this idea of pride in something that was given to you and you mentioned it with the the therapy right this now there's a pride in your gender your sexuality a pride in your nationality a pride in your race all of these things are very like this is fucking radioactive and my thought over the past couple months has been you can't be proud of something you didn't fucking do right like i was born here how can I be proud of something that is pure luck and chance and happenstance, right? And the only thing you can be is grateful. Mm-hmm. And when you change that from entitlement to like gratitude, you, you really like change how you refer to things. I can be proud of the things that we print. You can be proud of the company that you're mm-hmm. now leading. You can be proud of a hunt or a, you know an animal that you killed and harvested and fed your family with. Those are things you can be proud of. You don't, I mean, this is a fucking really morose, dark way to put it, but you don't get to be proud of what you put your dick in. Like that is not, that's such a fucking weird thing to, to just, take on when it's all circumstance and happenstance and where the dice fall. Um, you're not proud because you won the lottery, right? <laughs> like, hmm. So I, you, what you guys are describing, I think I've been thinking about it for a couple of weeks of like how to put this out, how to put this idea out there, you know, cause not trying to offend people mm-hmm. like, like, like their personal uh, preferences and things aren't important. They are important to them, but no one else really gives a shit. Um, but to foster this idea that could benefit you, which is if you work for something and you earn it, then then you can instill pride. Hmm. Yeah, and it's like with that, you know, that call that, hey, Boston, you know, you're the man of the house. It's almost like, and I think as, and I don't know where our culture has lost this, hmm. but it's like, I think in that moment, it's like you're like as a young boy looking up to your dad, like, you're just kind of yearning for that opportunity to be responsible Mm -hmm. in a way. And then, like you said, it's that opportunity where like, that's a gift to be able to, you know, if you, if you as a dad, you want your son to be proud, to be able to be proud of something for like what you're saying. So giving him the hard thing Mm -hmm. and the response, the, the opportunity to take responsibility is like the ultimate gift in a way. Yeah. I look at it like that as well. Yeah. And and I yeah. think through, you know, whether it's hunting, whether it's physical effort, 
it's like that has taught i think us mm-hmm. if, if you talk about you know what kind of therapy have mm-hmm. we been through it's like <laughs> that has you know obviously informed how we view gratitude and pride yeah and yeah. this is an interesting conversation too because it's like and we've talked about this actually recently cause i think you know our mom put us in some counseling i think directly after from what i remember just vaguely but we other than you know knights of heroes and some other experiences we haven't really you know had necessarily fair like yeah. tr- quote unquote Structure, therapy, right yeah, yeah, exactly the traditional sense and so and i and i'm extremely open to that you know and i think it's interesting to continue to try and decode and unlock potentially what's there and i have no doubt that when i'm 50 you know something's going to pop up that might be different than when i'm 23 or, or when i'm 15 or whatever so i'm high i'm completely open to that but there's something to be said for i think what we're talking about of and some people might even maybe look at me and grayson and we might look a little different than some other gold star kids and or maybe the demographic i'll say mm-hmm. and it's kind of like this curiosity of like what like what is it like what do you not that we're doing anything spectacular but i think that what it is is it's like in a way somehow some of it was probably embedded in us maybe because of our who our dad was maybe because, whatever yeah. but but we kind of learn how to help ourselves mm-hmm. so in a, in a way and it's not me like taking pride in this mm-hmm. i'm not an expert i'm not claiming i could do to myself what someone else might be able to offer me but i've kind of been taught to have the tool to be able to be my own mm-hmm. counselor in a way and it, again it's not saying that i wouldn't still in tandem add help or, or sure. be interested in another offer but there's that core piece and grayson said whether that's through effort whether that's through learning a skill whether that's through just trying to be open to relationship just any of those things that's has a tinge of uncomfort mm-hmm. It has that, it's like that key that can just unlock so much. And I think that on a surface level, people can see that. And, you know, like we have these jokes with our family that we like, they just say we do hard things or whatever. And it's kind of this, but it's like, it's not, it's not like I, again, I'm not saying it couldn't turn into just a numbing technique or a pride thing. It can for sure be. Oh yeah, I mean, you can I mean y'all ultra marathon <laughs> your way into some fucking depression. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Like, so there's still nuance there. Yeah, yeah. But at its core, to be able to have the ability to do that, mm. I mean, I I think if everyone had that, I, and it look can look totally different for everyone. I'm not saying you got to do this one because it's not the thing that matters. It's that I'm willing to maybe have the mind's eye to be able to get up and and serve myself. Because then I'm actually going to be, it's going to be easier for other people to serve me if I already have an idea of maybe kind of like this this self-reliance or self-sufficiency that can, that actually makes then my community's job a little easier. Mm. It, and I'm not completely reliant and dependent on all the out- external support. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it's a, a Absolutely. Yeah, I think it's one of the reasons why we believe so much in doing hard things, like hard efforts, like you think that this is hard, like go and do a race, like go put what you can do to the test and not because that's cool or winning's cool, but like everyone should know what it feels like to do hard things and accomplish hard things. And even if you're not winning, like a life situation will come up and you will have that assurance inside of you that you can go through something really challenging Mm -hmm. and come out the other side. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why endurance sports, 
I gravitated towards endurance sports. You know, I could go through and and run for a very long distance until, you know, I outran everything else and then kept going, you know, and I needed that. Like I needed to have that tool in my toolbox. Um, Yeah, and if we talk about effort as a teacher, I think part of it too you brought up earlier is just committing to a process. And like that's mm -hmm. one of those foundational things of like, when we talk about endurance, it's like understanding that you're committing to something now that you may not see the payoff until much, much later. Yeah, that's so valuable. I, that's uh, Isn't that investment? Yeah. Like you literally just described the economy, right? <laughs> like the economy is the, the double down bet and work put into the idea that the future will be better than our present. And that, that simple idea is credit. Right, that's why you're afforded um, the ability to leverage. And you can do that without any money by just taking the concept yourself and investing in yourself by saying, look, that my future self will be better than the present one, right? The technology will be better. My ability will be better. I'll be more well thought out. I'll be easier to get along with. I'll be you know, more amicable. I'll be all of these things because I'm, you know, I'm still messy. Right? I still have things that I'm like polishing. I still got rough edges. I'm still like short tempered. I'm still all of these things. As long as I can acknowledge that, it doesn't really matter what you are. You know that you, there's self-improvement there. And the message these days is you're fine just how you are. And you're like, I, I totally get the mm -hmm. sentiment. Like, I, I don't want to belittle the idea of, of removing self-hatred and getting rid of these uh, concepts that are kind of poisonous about... Um, you know, not being good enough because that's the, that on a spectrum, that's not neutral. That's on the negative side of it. But if we come back to neutral, right, I don't, I don't have a, a disorder that's putting me in debt. Like, you know, uh, it's not putting me in psychological or emotional debt to think poorly about myself because I think about it as the same thing. Uh, it's a credit card, right? You're like taxing yourself with these negative thoughts. So, but at neutral, you can go, okay, now I have, I'm balanced. I'm gonna start removing things and making myself better because I acknowledge the things that I need to work on. And that's how any, any kind of investment structure works. It's like, am I working from a good place, free of debt, uh, psychological or emotional, and now I can start leaning towards positive features of it. And then your future improves. Who here wouldn't buy land in 1980? Right? Yeah. And the same thing could be said today. Who doesn't buy land today is in, you know, 30 years going to be like, ah, it was so cheap. Yeah. I didn't see that coming. <laughs> what do you mean you didn't fucking see it coming? <laughs> Houses were $10,000 in like 1930, and now they're a million dollars for the same size house. You're like, we know that things improve, yeah. but very few people act like they improve. Mm. And I think. We look at it like finance because, you know, we're told that stuff and things and money in our culture is the most important thing. But <clears throat> if we just change the conversation to being like investment in us as in people, we are the future. Like yeah. what we do is going to determine how well our culture is. And I, I have a pro We talked about this a little bit with the gun stuff because um, I like guns and running around kind of like thinking about how hard it is to shoot a target. And I like the ability to be. I like the the concept of being a, being capable of being dangerous because I think it holds other things at bay. But I don't like the concept of impending doom. 
I don't like the apocalyptic uh, mind state, mm-hmm. right? And that, that comes really quickly, especially in veteran-owned businesses and prepping and like all these, you know, a lot of the military culture is based off of like survival and what to do in the worst case scenarios, which I think is something that should be handed down. That's knowledge that people need to practice and do. But then there's the, uh, I'm gonna get into gunfight in Salt Lake City in a 7-Eleven. And I'm just working on my less than two second draw for concealment mm-hmm. because I'm gonna shoot bad guys. And you're like, that is gonna manifest some shit, yeah. right? If you, if you foster it. Now it doesn't mean you can't prepare, it doesn't mean you shouldn't carry, mm-hmm. it doesn't mean you shouldn't train, it doesn't mean you shouldn't do all the things that you could. You just have to be very careful with like how you look at it. And I, I would really like to, I only say this because I'm a like uh, a not so closeted pessimist coming into being, you know, maybe in, I don't know what my, I'm not an optimist for sure. But I would like to like aim that way because I like that, that's my tuning. I want to mm-hmm. like actually tune it up. I want to like think that the future is going to be better. Um, yeah, it's like that power, the power of the story that you believe. You yeah. Know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's like, and, and if you act as if, yeah, it's like you can be a pessimist. It's like I mean, if you're a realist, you're probably a pessimist. Sure. Yeah. Um, but <laughs> acting as if you're an optimist is like maybe I don't know. I'm just exploring. Mm-hmm. Maybe the way to Im- actually get to improvement. Yeah, you have to envision. Mm-hmm. This is. I think this is a misconception. We talk about it a little bit with um, uh, the 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 qualities of ego. Right. Everybody's like, kill your ego. And we're like, don't do that. Mm-hmm. Like, that's the part of you that can envision something better than what you are now. Yeah. Like, that's mm-hmm. hubris in a sense. Um, and then once you recognize it, you use the um, spectrum of that humility to foster humanity, mm-hmm. which is the center. Like, it keeps you balanced to go between this hubris and humility back and forth. I can envision my greatness, but I'm humbled by how little I know. Yeah. Right, but I think I could know more. Like that's ego. Why would you get rid of that? Why would you kill it? Why would you? Why would you try to remove that and become nothing? I was like, then complacency seeks in. Yeah. No, I'm good enough. I'm beautiful just the way I am, which is a bullshit cultural uh, implication that is not true. Um, my favorite saying for for a little bit that was popping up is that um, oh God, now I can't even remember how it goes. I'm gonna lose it. Um, you're perfect just the way you are and there's room for improvement. Hmm. <laughs> it's a, it's a, yeah, it's a funny, like, cause you do have to acknowledge that a, a pessimistic mind state does not help. Mm-hmm. It's not like in a worst case scenario, you want a realist there, but a gloom and doom kind of person. We're like, well, we're all fucked. Let's mm-hmm. just like everybody one bullet per chamber. Let's do it at the same time. <laughs> That's not going to fucking help anybody. Yeah. Right. Somebody is like, I'm not an optimist, but maybe we should put all those rounds in one magazine and get some shit done mm. and like see if we can't better our circumstance. Yeah. <laughs> Shoot our way out a little bit. Right. Um, well, I think that's why holistic development is important. Mm. You, you can't neglect, like, you're right. A, when you, you mentioned the ultra running thing, <laughs> you can be dangerous, whether it be with being proficient with <laughs> firearms or being proficient in endurance, mm-hmm. and you can be pretty dangerous to, to yourself. yourself. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, yeah. I, I mean, one of the arcs that we try to um, foster is the ability to suffer and the ability to recognize suffering to the point of self harm. Yeah. 
right? Like you're never going to make, you have to be able to hurt yourself to get through certain things when it is, when it is important, Mm -hmm. but you also have to have the ability to pull back so that you can make it to the end. And that's maybe the difference between capacity and endurance Mm. is capacity is the ability to hurt yourself. Um, and endurance is the ability to hurt yourself, but survive the actual timeline. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's good. Which you've just experienced. You came from a race. <laughs> I did. <laughs> and I I was going to tell you, Aaron, I rolled my ankle on the last mile. Oh, oh did no. you really? <laughs> Is it super bad? It's not too okay. bad. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Just uh, tweaked it a little bit. Just tweaked it. Exactly. I, this is your first endurance experience, uh-huh. yeah? Uh-huh. What made you curious to do that? I mean, besides your entire life about... <laughs> you're already an endurance athlete. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, it's a good question. I think I, I think my curiosity is what was driving me with that. And this is the first one, and I want to keep going. I, I mean, I'm. Yeah. I, I honestly think it was just the being curious about the experience. You know, and this one was 18 miles. Yeah. It was in Jackson. You know, on a mountain. So yeah. it was up and down. Up and down. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think. Uh, and you know, I, the manual. I actually use the manual to train. Oh, did you so, really? Yeah. Uh huh. Does oh, it work? That's awesome. Dude, <laughs> it's great. Okay. Yeah. Well, he rolled his ankle, so just maybe includes not. some <laughs> ankle rehab. Uh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> it's just in the, in the end, appendix. It has no context. It's just like how to rehab an ankle. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's um, awesome. So you did yeah. a lot of this training in a gym. Mm-hmm. Most of it. Well, and I'm in Dallas. No so kidding. It's like, dude, oh yeah, I don't mean, have any was, elevation. It, right. Lots Box of step ups and air yeah. diving. Yeah, that was oh. it. <laughs> oh my it was gosh. all y'all. <laughs> I I can attest that it works. So when I was uh, training to do the grouse grind. Mm-hmm. Um, I was in Chicago and so it was just like stair stepper and box step ups. Yeah. Like it's, uh, it's not the best, sure. but man, it works. It's an artificial cure all. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah, oh, it's, yeah. oh man. I mean, that I've trained really like cool. just on a treadmill mm-hmm. for like races, long races. Yeah. Mm. And it's not the best. It's it's really weird when you go to race and you're like, oh, when I stop, the ground doesn't keep moving. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, there's the tendency. Gets the job done. It's like a treadmill works kind of like a leash. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, like when you don't want it, kind of like keeps you at speed. Right. Which can be a bad habit. Mm. Right. You're like depending on a machine to drag you, and you actually need to push yourself, mm. not be pulled. That's interesting. That's interesting. But uh, as long as it, I mean, it's it's interesting. Our thesis on endurance, especially using like gym uh-huh. for, especially the thing that you're doing, we're not talking about hyper specialization. Sure. We're just talking about showing up and being able to have an experience mm-hmm. that is one that's indicative of enduring. And so, um, what was your? How many days a week were you running? Were you doing? Not much. Okay. Um, I started <laughs> in February with the manual yeah. and, dude, maybe one or two times a week. Perfect running. Yeah. yeah. And you made it. Yeah. Decently. No, 100%. Four did you hours. win? I did not win. I did not <laughs> win. definitely didn't win. Right. It was, yeah, four hours and 36 minutes for 18 miles. And you summit at mile 12. And it was a 5,000 foot climb. <laughs> Starting at 5,000, you get to 10,000 oh, no feet at mile 12, if that makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, you yeah, work yeah, your yeah, way yeah. back yeah. down after. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it was hiking. It was hiking and bombing. Yeah. down the hill yeah. were essentially the two for that one. And when you think the hard part's over, because you're like, yeah, no more elevation right. gain. And then you're like, a Downhill mile into is the really hill. hard. It's so taxing. It's it's taxing it's on your part. brain. Yeah, because I was going to say it's mentally taxing. Yep. Yeah, you have to watch where you're stepping. And oh, yeah. 
be really on point. Um, Julia, mm. one of the things that she said was the toughest. She did a, how long did it take her to finish her last race? Oh, I it's can't a hundred something miles. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, George, you guys know George uh-huh. flew out to help her through the night. And she said, my brain was just so tired wow. that I needed someone there just to like make sure that I didn't slip or twist mm. my ankle or step yeah. on a root and roll something. So I think that that's one of the hardest parts about that long distance mm-hmm. of an, of an yeah. endurance event. Like when we did the 24 hour challenge, like the middle of the night, my brain was just going crazy. I'm like, yeah. okay, all I know is if I get on, I'm going to be on for eight minutes. And like, I don't know anything else. But when I get on the bike, I just go for eight minutes. Wow. Like it was so weird. Like I can't. Right. There's another technique. I can't imagine like guiding myself through the woods. <laughs> <laughs> there, there's this other technique. Uh, they talk about it in the book, uh, Endure, a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think it's... Um, I think it's interesting because it sets up what Aaron's talking about, which is like uh, uh, they do a hypervigilant test. Mm -hmm. So um, in order to save the abuse on the body, there's only so much aerobic work you can do. Mostly you're dealing with a brain problem. And the brain problem is your brain fatigues and then you don't make good decisions. Like continuing, you quit because your brain is not vigilant. So the vigilance test, uh, and I've used this with some guys selecting for, um, that were training on injuries, but they were getting ready for selection. So it's like, there's no, like it's their job. Like this isn't like a, hey, rest for a year. You're like this window where you can select into one of these groups. uh, It's very narrow. Mm -hmm. And um, one guy was dealing with torn ACL, shoulder, like super fucked up. Um, and we're trying to think of ways to get him. We're using like a water treadmill, mm-hmm. a weight of like anti-gravity treadmill, stuff like that. So he could get the motion without the impact. So he could heal his joints and some other things. And one of the ways that we did it was he gave him a vigilance test before every run. So he would spend 20 minutes hitting a button on his phone that has to stay within a very tight parameter of a reaction huh. time. So the vigilance is that it's within a parameter and the second you start failing out, then you go for a run. And if you've if you've ever done it, I've done it like 10 or 12 times. I had to quit doing it because it's fucking miserable. But what happens is you start running and you feel like you're on mile 10. Your brain is already making bad decisions. Yeah. So your, bo- your brain is the only thing that's fatigued and your body responds. So you're working through, which is, the, you're working through the biggest limitation, which is your psychology right? Mm. You're training that and you're just attuning to like, well, my lungs and my legs and my muscle, those will adapt just fine mm-hmm. as long as my brain can do it. It's a, it's an interesting way to go. So if you want to train low volume and still get a result, yeah. do vigilance. Oh. Yep. It's kind of interesting. That was the beeper. Did we just? No, it's on. Oh. It just usually beeps at the <laughs> And go. Mark. No, just kidding. <laughs> and we lost the recording. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I hope you guys continue with endurance stuff because mm. it's it's fun and it sounds like you guys do it together. Yeah. And yeah. 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 It's, it's a cool thing. I think so too, Aaron. And Grayson just did an Ironman. So oh, we talked really? about my trail really? run race. But <laughs> a, full, a full distance? Yeah. So I did, I did a half to train yeah. in training yeah. and then I did a full. Nice. Um, Gross. Yeah. It was pretty awful. What was your finish time? Uh, slow. It was like yeah, 13 hours. That's. Uh, it was, I mean, I know I, I was stoked. I mean, it's, it's my, 13 it's hours. First distance, <laughs> first distance yeah. at, or you know, first race of that distance. That's really sure. cool. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, similarly, I think just that that 
curiosity because I came, I mean, I came from more of a CrossFit Olympic Mm -hmm. lifting background, I guess, in the last few years. Um, But, you know, it was mentioned earlier, just picking a direction and starting to walk and recognizing it that it's interesting, like being able to recognize that I don't know what direction I'm walking, but I know I'm going to learn something on the path and maybe yeah. I'm walking the right direction. If I figure out I'm walking in the wrong direction, whatever. Yeah. So that was with like, <laughs> Iron Man is the wrong direction. <laughs> yes, it, <laughs> yes, it is. Um, but even with, with, with training for it and figuring out training, it's like, I mean, me and Boston have talked about like all the classic overtraining mm-hmm. mistakes and yeah, it's like, Oh yeah. Like, yep. Made those learn mm-hmm. from it, you know, and then have those tools for next time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty, it's a good experience. I yeah. would never do, I can't even say that. I would never do it again. <laughs> I would. Ne- I. I was gonna say I would never do a half Ironman again, but I can't say that. I would say that I would never want to do it. Hey, what yeah. are you doing New Year's? I know. <laughs> well, we were talking about doing a uh, a twenty four hour triathlon. Oh, you um, guys should come into New Year's. Come into town for. We're gonna New do Year's. something stupid. Yeah. 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 That's the number one question that I've gotten is, oh, would you do it again? Of course, you know. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know triathlon i don't think it's my thing yeah. i'll do as long as painful or more yeah, yeah, yeah. long and more just the painful. activity has to match yeah. the psychology mm-hmm. yeah like yeah. running like if you're a runner it's like the answer is running and if you're biking the answer is biking uh, only fucking weirdos ultra swim let's be honest like, <laughs> yeah, it's weird. yeah no one wants to be in the water for more than 20 minutes <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's a weird one my, my girlfriend is a she was a college swimmer oh she, really? she kind of helped coach grace and oh, well nice. they kind of worked in tandem through some of the swimming portion. Yeah, because I, I have no swim experience. Oh, whatsoever. good. Yeah. yeah. That's Before the hardest this. part. Yeah. Gosh. Yeah. Which, yeah. That's why it's the shortest. Open <laughs> water. Yeah. Open water is pretty rough, too. Well, oh where did you do your triad? It was open. It was Tulsa, Oklahoma. Oh, yeah. That's a big one mm. because it's flat, right? The yes. yeah, bike is flat. Yeah. Well, the, the bike is decently hilly. It's not it's a, for, for Ironman standards, pretty hilly. I mean, in 112 miles, we gained like 50K. Mm. So it was. Whoa. Wait, a fire. 5k or five okay sorry, yeah 5K. i was like <laughs> i was like no that's Ooh. a <laughs> climb yeah, to everest my bad twice. <laughs> 5k yeah five, okay so for, yeah, iron, for iron okay. man standards you know every the triathlon to me is kind of funny yeah they are kind of weird yeah, uh, so what me and mark did a bike ride one time in chicago when we were there and we just did this like big giant square it was a hundred miles <sighs> and we got back and we had gained a total of like 13 feet it was like how is that even fucking pot? It yeah. was the flattest wow. thing I, ever. There was not, I think it was reading the speed bumps we went over. Like, what? Yeah, <laughs> that's so, yeah. that's like crazy. I, I, um, back in March, I biked the length of the keys of the Florida keys. Oh, nice. And that, that was a really fun ride. That was also really flat. I mean, I think I had like 200 feet and 130 miles. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's serious. Same as weird. That's pretty interesting. I, man, I, it's so it's so not surprising that you guys find endurance stuff. Honestly, like when you start tracking it, like your history and the and the narrative yeah. and the stuff that comes on, you're like, it's just present, right? right? It's like right around the corner from people who do things, mm-hmm. start businesses, deal with things. Like it's it's pretty. Hmm. I don't know how to make a correlation of it, but if we had like enough people tracking data we'd have like some kind of scatter chart that's like yeah i don't know if i would be the person that i am today without endurance Hmm. sports like life is an endurance sport right yeah it's that that (laughs) life is endurance you know for sure definitely and like even moving into crossfit like i don't think i would be 
that good at CrossFit mm-hmm. if if I didn't start there first. Yeah. <laughs> one thing that you said, Michael, on one podcast talking about uh, strength and endurance and strength, I'm going to totally butcher it, but kind of promoting an ego response mm-hmm. a little bit more strongly than endurance is a, there's a little bit more loss. Yeah. That is, I think, associ- or that's tethered to an endurance yeah. type effort. And I think, I think just naturally, I think I feel that, you know, I, I don't know about Grayson, but I, I feel like we have had kind of a little bit of a slow drip experience in some kind of a, some painful ways. Yeah. And so I, I just think that I know that I've like what you just said, Aaron, I've gleaned a, a lot more benefit I'd say from an endurance s- style of experience as opposed to this. I'm let, I'll say I'm less attracted naturally toward like the, bravado strong expression i just don't i just don't find and i'm not trying to it's not like picking sides i think there's immense value in both but maybe it's just a personal thing with like you said your history well i think there's something to be said about running and out and back okay i'm gonna go run until i'm tired i'm gonna run 20 miles and at 20 miles i'm gonna be tired i'm gonna turn around and getting through the next 20 miles to get you home, like that, that is a different process yeah. than, okay, I'm going to put this weight on my back and you know what, if I can't lift it today, cool, I'm gonna rack my weights and I'm gonna mm. go get waffles. Like, it, yeah. and it, that doesn't mean that I don't appreciate strength uh-huh. and yeah, heavy totally. weights. It's just different, like it's a different aspect of working through those obstacles yeah. in your head. Yeah. And like I said, I appreciate both of them, but if I, if I had to choose one lesson over another um i definitely have a lot more respect for endurance it's funny that like it's um we're just comparative by nature and so we say effort and i'm like short long or like they're like there's some kind of answer when in reality it's like would you rather pick sad or happy and you're like well i couldn't you can't have one you need like contrast yeah and so people try to people have a preference based off of maybe personality or just like the thing that they want to feel and strength is intense pain mm. right it's like sharp yeah. um we had a chance uh with um last week uh to go out to this gym called the compound out in magna oh my gosh and I, I we're doing it we're gonna shoot for the thing that aaron is working on now and uh, we wanted a strongman gym, and uh, Sean Waxman was like, "Oh, my! I, I met this guy. He owns a you know strongman gym. It's a powerlifting gym, and it's in a garage." And I was like, "Oh, perfect! That sounds awesome." So we got a hold of him. Hey, can we just come out? Just take some pictures. I'm thinking garage gym. Like I trained at Mad Dog in mm-hmm. in Detroit, and it's like garage gym. Like literally, they move the Chevy, and then like there's equipment there. There's like 390 pound stones and shit. <laughs> And so uh, I was expecting the same thing, like, you know, whatever. We walked out. No, Compound is the right name for it, actually. It is insane how how nice that place is. And, I mean, it is a full-blown powerlifting gym. We had no idea what we were walking into. And we walk in, me, Mark, Thurk, uh, Aaron, Cece, and Elodie. Like, we walk in, like, the smallest... I felt so out of place. The smallest people that have ever walked into that place. Because the first guy, when you walk in, the owner, Shay or something, he's, I don't know, 280 pounds, probably. He's... And just, like, I don't know, a fucking... A thick wall yeah. of a man. <laughs> and wide. Like, wide and thick. 
He's just like a cube. <laughs> <laughs> and he had like, I, he was bench pressing. Like the five, nicest guy you'll ever meet. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We yep. walked in, he's bench pressing five plates. Yeah. And he's like, oh, it's the first day back after like I thought I herniated a disc. It's just like, they're the nicest fucking people. Yeah. Right? And there's like nonstop fucking posi core hate breed playing. In the background. It's like such a fun, like, it's such a like, yeah, this is a powerlifting yeah. gym. And then there's like us dweebs in there like lifting their like, Should so- I wear my tall socks today? We're, we're like looking for stones to lift. And they go basically, we have a 45 pound stone, a 90 pound stone, a 140, and then 300. Yeah, it's just like, like oh up to like the heaviest. And we're like, we'll mess with the tiny stones. <laughs> Uh, but they were like the funny thing about it is like you get this you see immediately walk in you get this like posturing mm-hmm. and then when we start asking questions and like you know showing an interest in like the fact that we yeah. are like man how do you do that that's crazy you show like a genuine curiosity and that whole thing drops and they're like oh look at this mm-hmm. and a, a woman that was there I forgot her name I can't remember her name she bench pressed 405 she's like world record holder she back squat 565 the other day it was just like wow how do we like walk into this den and so to say that there's a they are different things and they're used for different ends and different means and the best part about it is like talking to those guys you start talking about just effort leave the specifics out of it and just talk about why you need to become proficient and why you want to like explore Mm -hmm. ability and you're on the same page. Like you would guess that you're the same person, you're training for the same thing. Cause we're both just talking about excelling, like yeah. picking something, focusing on it and excelling at it. It's like a trajectory, I need to meet the trajectory. There's just happens to be a thousand pound squat yep. and mine, you know, is maybe like pulling off a move in jujitsu or whatever. Mm-hmm. They, they both take practice, they take attention. And the commonality is that you can only think about that. That's all you can think about is like, man, I, I, I wish I wasn't working right now. I'd go work on that thing. Um, I had an interesting experience. Speaking of like weird endurancey things, um, we watched a musician play last night for six hours straight. Six hours, two like in two hour segments. But like the only break was like to get a different instrument, and it was like, how the. F- do you train for that i mean the the guitar for two hours i could play like i could play for five minutes and i'm fatigued i'm like the crossfitter of fucking (laughs) i'm I'm the crossfitter of music playing or whatever um so I, i think endurance pops up in really epic ways but then intensity pops up too because if you heard the drumming it's just your heart is going to beat out of your chest it's so intense so there's this really cool I don't know. It's a. I think about these concepts now more generally than I ever have because I think that if you if you do if you can generalize these and use them as principles as an energy system for just doing what you need to do, then it's applicable to every single person. A lot of people have a hard time fathoming. Like I'm getting ready for an Ironman. Um, cool. You need to like put in 20 hours a week on a bike. You need to be in the pool six hours and then you're running, you know, 80, 80 miles a week or something. People are like, it's a full-time job. And you're like, yeah. You said like, what did you think it was? Yeah. Like it, it, the pursuit of doing something that is beyond the norm is going to take beyond the norm training or beyond the norm preparation. Um, and so, uh, I think 
when you're talking about life events, like how you describe um, things that happen to people, <clears throat> deaths and, you know, when life is cut short, um, it, this concept comes into play. I mean, not, not many people know that I wrote uh, the endurance manual on um, kind of the it, the the period around Aaron's mom passing. Mm-hmm. I was like, everything that I got, I wasn't exercising. I wasn't talking about, I'm not talking about physiology. I am, but that's like the least important thing yeah. there. What I was watching was how somebody could hang on to the end and how watching somebody hang on to the end is in itself another endurance event. And the, like the concept it is true with you guys. Um, at nine, you started, right? And and then the unfortunate soul that passed looking for your father, it cascaded. We're all talking about this trial that we're kind of moving through. And if you don't practice moving through that and like how to do it, how do I do it better? How do I do it more efficiently? Um, I... I just, I don't even know how to talk to you mm. if you don't understand that as a concept. Yeah. Or if you're not, sorry, if, you, if you're not curious about it as a concept of how to figure out how to live. That's ultimately the most interesting question. Yeah. Um, and because like most good questions, there is no answer. Like the answer is discrete. It's unknown. It's a probability. Um, it, it falls into somewhere in a realm and when you observe it it will manifest itself right it'll be like this is the answer for yeah. you um hmm. i've really enjoyed listening to you guys' story about your father and like i can't even express how grateful hmm. i am for you guys sharing that i had no idea that that was even coming i thought we were going <laughs> to talk about shitty instagram comments or something. <laughs> and I, I appreciate like you took me out of this like very like small mind thing about bitching about other people into hmm. a bigger story and I think, man, if if I could, if if anything, your father's story just like you know, hopefully did that on a very mm. macro scale for like, hey, it's like a state change, you know. Yeah. Forget about this small petty bullshit and think about you know a bigger picture and how how the narrative of life plays out. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that, man. I, and I think that the, the tr- sometimes. I think it's tempting to make a trade of like, oh, well, then the small petty thing doesn't matter. It's like, well, that's life. That's good. Like, that's actually all you do. Like you said yeah. earlier, the yeah. present moment is all we have. Yeah. So it's like it's like trying to, to – it's like I appreciate that and have, being able to zoom out and see the narrative is so healthy and I'm grateful that you were able to maybe have that experience, that we are able to have that experience. But – I hope that it just recalibrates the quote unquote petty mm. to, for then you to just be able to be in it in the, like, I think to try to articulate this, I think the most helpful word of advice I got after my dad passed away and it was told to me and Grayson, but from one of the guys my dad worked with, he said, how you honor him is just by how you live. Mm-hmm. And that's, and that's what he would want. Mm-hmm. It, it's awesome to talk about it. I, I love, I think that reflection is powerful, but at the same time, it's like, okay, now go get in the petty. 
and and see if there's a rewire. How do you deal with petty? Right. Yeah. One hundred percent. I love that. Actually, I mean, it's it's like uh, that's general good good human quality, right? Just like prove yourself. Like you honor somebody by you you uh, you be a good student by being a good teacher and vice versa. Um, on the what made me think to back up on the 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 petty thing because I think I'm gonna mess up the math on this which is pretty interesting. You see an arc like I care about the bigger sto- the bigger picture is more important. You're like, but every arc every circle is actually just made out of angles, mm. right? It's just like half a circle would be what twenty I think it's like twenty twenty four thousand points. Mm. That's twenty four thousand angles make up a you know half of a cir- semicircle because if I remember right, it's forty nine something. So if if you think about the petty things as just one angle in your arc, the petty things are important because without them, you start diminishing it. You start yeah. getting a choppy arc. It's not a clear picture mm. of where it's not a clear trajectory. But you start like lining these petty things up, <clears throat> how you deal with them consistently. And you have this life well lived. People will look at it and they'll they'll not be able to see the individual points, but they'll see the trajectory of somebody's life and they'll go, oh man, how did they do that? And they'll look at the start and the finish and they'll draw this perfect curve and they won't see the angles in between that made up that curve. Yeah, and like, not to say something super cheesy, but like a hundred mile races, so one step at a time. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. They, these, these are like truths that yeah. they get said so often that they lose their meaning, but the meaning always comes back when you realize the truth of it. Mm-hmm. Like that's the weird part about truth is that it's obvious. Mm-hmm. It's self-evident. Um, I, I, that's like, I, I think one of the concepts that uh, Mark and I both like kind of attuned to is the idea that, um, the truth of something is shades of gray, but also obvious in the moment. And you don't, if you, and I made this mistake for a long time of trying to like philosophize my way into truth as opposed to living your way into the obvious nature of, of hmm. truth. Um, and a lot of, um, there's a lot of traditions that refer to truth as light because it's obvious when you're in the light and it's obvious when you're in the dark. Yeah. Um, knowledge and the human experience isn't so obvious to most people because a they're not looking they're not seeking and that's the reason why we refer to these like these concepts of man we just want seekers we want people that are looking people listening people you know so I'm trying to pay attention to my senses because I want to make sure whether I'm in the light or the dark and sometimes I can't realize one without the other I have to fall off on one side in order to understand that I was in a weird path Mm -hmm. and that snaking path of shadow and light um, the term for that I think it's in the Rigavada maybe I'm wrong but it's called guru so when you meet somebody who's a guru it's somebody who can navigate the light and dark Hmm. and that's that like these these are another simple truth it's like cheesy but it's also a hundred percent true when you talk to a profound teacher the knowledge is very simple and it makes you laugh because you're like, ah, I was overcomplicating it, <laughs> right? It's like, just t- how do I do it? Take another step, yeah. which is kind of how our manual goes. Like, how do I endure? You don't, you don't think about it. You feel about it. Um, that's one of the things that we're like moving towards is mm-hmm. this idea of like your mind gets in the way, yeah. right? It's important. It's part of the experience, but um, tuning that as well is the important part. Mm. 
Um, turning it down is an important feature. Yeah. And then turning the feeling up is an important feature, whether that's f like feeling emotions, uh, feeling sensitive to your environment, all these things, I think um, it's just tuning Yeah, up and down. Yeah. I don't know how much time we have left. Oh, yeah. Um, but what else? I, we didn't even talk about uh, strange. We didn't talk about <laughs> all the things that we plan to. But I, know. I, I think there's more in here. Yeah. You guys are always welcome back here. A hundred percent. I really enjoy you taking the time and coming and sharing Same your here, story. Man. And um, where can people find you? And if people want to support your business, uh, it's Honeybeer Protein. Mm -hmm. It's the Instagram and yeah yeah so the business is yeah honeybeard uh honeybeard training is technically the name of it, but yeah search honeybeard protein and it'll pop up um and then yeah me and grayson are both on instagram uh for me it's just boston gilbert and nice. i'm just grayson yeah. gilbert grayson gilbert cool mm -hmm. awesome thank you guys so much for coming on i thanks, really appreciate Michael. it thanks brother